Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week of the Strategic News Service video podcast. I'm here. My name is Barrett Anderson. I'm the COO of Strategic News Service and Future in Review. And I'm here, as usual, with Mark Anderson, our CEO uh, and chair of Future in Review. And we are going to, uh, full disclosure, we uh, just came back from a week in Sedona. So uh, it was a family vacation, as many of you know. Mark is, in addition to being my uh, my uh, boss, also my father. It's a fun it's a fun family dynamic. Those of you who have been to Fire know that a lot of our conference uh, and team staff is is family related. Um, but I'm curious. We're, we're here to talk today about a new initiative we have coming out this week about the future of energy and the future of the grid. Yes, we are. <laughs> so um, I think, Barrett, it would be helpful before we get deeply into this, um, if you could explain, let's start with action tanks, because that's where this came from. So what is an action tank and how does that work? And then maybe we'll jump into from action tanks into the subject. So FIRE, as you know, has always been in the business of creating solution sets for problems. Uh, for global large global challenges and identifying ways that technology can advance those things. That's something that I think David Brin actually first brought to fire several years ago, many years ago through our CTO challenges. And so for the last year, we've been kind of piloting this new program that we're calling the Fire Action Tank. And the idea is to generate very specific actions to a specific global challenge by bringing together a group of, of experts across that field from different sectors to try to create a solution set that, that takes into account a lot of different expertise levels and challenges and can kind of create something that we can all move forward together on. And just for the sake of our new audience, if they're assuming there is a new audience out there, um, FIRE, when you say FIRE, you mean Future in Review Conference. Yep. And so uh, that's so they know that and they look at futureandreview.com to understand that better. Mm -hmm. um, now, going forward from the idea of an action tank at fire, uh, explain, if you would, how um, you got involved and we got involved in the whole idea of the future of energy. Yeah, so this all started a few years ago. Um, we had a every year at our at our fire conference, we have this program called the Firestarter program. And fire starters are companies that we select each year uh, that are changing the world, using technology to change the world for the better in some way. And one of our fire starters a few years ago was a company called Alexis. Now, Alexis is a company, it's based in Australia, and it has created a technology, it's an, it's an AI platform that allows for the implementation of a fully two-way grid without replacing um, too much of the existing infrastructure. So you don't need to replace all the wires and poles. All you need is an Alexis unit, um, one essentially for every kind of like grouping of homes. Um, so uh, we wound up, I've, I was in Brisbane a few years ago for a conference and I wound up visiting their, their location and just catching up with them. And we started talking about the challenges of transitioning to a two-way grid Australia is much further ahead than the United States is on this front. And so as a result, that team has seen a lot of the challenges that, that their national and, and grid infrastructure has faced as it tries to make that transition because they have so much solar power. Um, and one of the things that, you know, given as we started talking more about this, we thought, hey, this is something that we could really, um, you know, 
I always think about like in my personal perspective, what is the biggest impact that I can have on a problem that is also within my personal locus of influence, right? Potentially. So um, I got to thinking about like, what are the biggest contributors to global emissions? So from a countrywide perspective, or from a, from a global perspective, national perspective, China is the biggest emitter by far, um, but the US is second. Uh, I think we emit 15% of global emissions. Um, and so within that infrastructure, the US electrical grid um, is a platform that enables us to decarbonize up to about 88% of our total emissions, right? So if, you, if we're able to completely transition the US grid to being powered by renewables, that allows us to, you know, begin, it gives us the platform to fully transition our manufacturing facilities, our transportation facilities as we transition to electric vehicles, um, our homes as we as we make our homes more efficient and, and power our homes differently. And so it just struck me that this was this huge opportunity to tackle a very challenging and kind of thorny topic that's really hard to understand. Uh, which is perfect for the fire community, right? It's extremely technical. It's too complicated for most people to bother thinking about. Um, and so we started working with Alexis about a year ago to bring together a group of, a we, we organized a series of roundtables focused on different sectors of the grid and transitioning the US grid, what it would take, what are the challenges, what are the possibilities, what innovations exist out there. Um, and we are, uh, just this week, releasing the executive summary of some of those findings, we'll be releasing a full white paper with recommendations for specific industries and, and act, actor types. So like lawmakers, what would a lawmaker do, a state lawmaker do if they wanted to help transition the grid to renewables? What would a utility need to do? Um, all of these kinds of things. So that will be forthcoming um, probably within the next month or two. So we've now we've defined fire, we've defined think tanks or action tanks. Um, we've defined the roundtable program, which is something you brought new to our attention and created, and um, which I think will be not only focused on energy, but other subjects as yeah. well in the future. That's pretty exciting. Very and cool. The culmination of the roundtable series, which I think were monthly series, um, has been this report you're referring to now uh, about 100% renewables. And so this is exciting. And I think we're going to publish this. Is that right in the global report? Yes. So by the time... At we're, we're not doing these videos live, but by the time you're seeing this video, the executive summary will be live um, at futureinreview.com. And it, we will have submit, we, have, we will have sent it out to all of our members in the global report. So we have this thing we call the Strategic News Service Global Report on Technology and the Economy. And um, it'll be, that'll be the subject this coming week of it. So people who are interested in that can find it on either of those places, or they could always subscribe to SNS as well. Yeah, you, you know, one of the things I was reading, the, I pulled out an economist um, this week and, I, and the headlines on, on the economist were like all things we've written about in the last two years. And it was just funny to me to watch because I was like, okay, that we wrote about two years ago, that we've been writing about for three years. That, so if you'd like to know what The Economist is going to write two years ahead of schedule, um, you should definitely become an SNS member. You can do that at stratnews.com and your first so, month is free. So this is funny because we didn't talk about this, but um, Barrett, I, I was just talking to someone else about this this morning. The cover issue this week, The Economist, is China economy slowing down. Mm -hmm. I pulled it out and I was showing it to uh, Megan and I said, you know, we published this 
in January of 2015. That would be seven years ago. Mm -hmm. They finally got it. It's great. Yeah, congratulations. They didn't get it all right, but at least they got it. Okay, so um, going forward, when you look at this grid space, what is the largest opportunity, do you think? Well, so the biggest challenge and opportunity that we have right now, I think, um, is a decentralized two-way grid, right? So there are a lot of companies out there that are working on um, creating microgrids around the country. Um, and the microgrid is kind of like a, a tiny contained grid that operates usually off of renewables. Um, the trick that we have and the problem that we're going to come up come up against as we put more and more of these microgrids online is that within the United States, there is a limit to the amount of energy that can be re-uptaken into the grid. So um, that is, you know, some communities have most communities in the US have not hit that limit yet. So it's not clear to anyone involved and actually many utilities don't really know it's a problem. But the problem is that um, when that lim because that limit exists, it limits um, financial, the potential financial investment in renewables, right? So if we were to create a, a truly two-way grid, it allows us to put as much you know, solar wind as possible into a specific location and it increases the return on investment for um, investment, private investment in renewables to such an extent that um, it would vastly accelerate the transition to a fully renewable grid without really requiring any specific or, or substantial um, investment from utilities. So if we were able to do that, that would be that would be a huge win. And that's kind of our main recommendation in this in this report. There are many ways to do that, but um, that's kind of the big picture. Barry, I noticed this happened with broadband, which is kind of a utility operation. And now I think it's happening here, but um, utilities don't always act in what I would call the best interests of the country or of the consumer. They act in their own best interests, which may be divergent. And so we have um, experienced in broadband laws in I think 37 states that prevented competition in cable. That was nice. And then, um, you know, I think now we're seeing. And along came Netflix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that that get out of the toothpaste tube. So, um, you know, now we're in this situation where we're trying to be innovative about energy and the grid. Uh, with with some utilities, really great, you know, trying to buy into it, and others trying to do everything they can to block it, and um, preventing, for instance, passing laws to prevent people from being paid back from their investment. Mm -hmm or not buying back the, the, the um, solar power they create. Mm -hmm. That's great, I love that, that's really sweet. So, um, you know, how do we deal with not only the best actors but the worst actors as we try to create more renewables and a better grid? Well, the thing about utilities is that there are so many of them. This is part of what makes the US grid so challenging to reform. Um, we essentially have three grids in the United States. We have the Eastern grid, the Western grid, and then Texas. Um, and so there are all kinds of challenges with long distance transmission, as well as what's like what's known as like shorter distance, you know, like the local grid, it's, it's called. Um, and I think, you know, each state has a different regulator that sets rules for the utilities in that state. So one of the key kind of linchpins in thinking about utilities generally, you're right, in the past, regulators have set two goals for utilities. Number one, keep prices as low as possible for consumers. And number two, provide reliable service 
right? Maintain reliable service at all costs. And so clearly they're not, they're having a lot more challenge, more challenging of a time providing reliable service. We've seen a, a huge uptick in outages all across the country. Um, but crucially, the third tenet of that should be remove, you know, decarbonize as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. We're clearly in a state of global emergency when it comes to our need to transition off of, you know, onto renewables. And so that's one thing at a state level that regulators could should do immediately. And in fact, many are starting to think about that and have those kinds of conversations. So those regulators and, and the, the rules that they set really dictate utilities within, within each sure. state. Sure. Okay. Um, when you look at the challenges facing utilities now, what are they? I mean, how do you see it from their perspective, right? Yeah, so I was at a, I was actually at a utility, um, a smart, it's called the Smart uh, Electric Power Authority or um, conference, SIPA conference, might have gotten that wrong, um, in Portland recently. And I had a chance to talk to a lot of different utilities about some of the challenges that they're facing. Um, the interesting thing about that experience was I think utilities kind of get, no, clearly the people that were at this conference were, were uh, you know, are committed to, yeah. Yeah, they're committed to this. Um, but I think the thing that struck me from that conversation is that their challenges specifically in, in advancing these causes within their organizations are more about financing and funding and more about, um, in fact, like supply chain issues than almost anything else. So um, for example, there are, you know, people in the up East Coast, Upper East Coast of the US who cannot move into their new homes because they don't have enough, um, they don't have enough chips to for the um, ener- smart energy meters, right? So you can't move into a, a new home unless there's energy, right? Um, so the supply chain challenges are also really challenging for utilities, which is not surprising, but maybe, you know, not something that you would have thought of necessarily. Um, and the other thing is that uh, the, the funding side of things, right? So a lot of the utilities that are able to put up, put these new um, microgrids into place to test these new microgrids are relying on grants to make that happen. Um, so it requires a specific kind of investment and a specific funding mechanism to make that happen. In Washington state, there's a department of commerce group that has been incentivizing that quite a bit and, and doing a lot of really interesting experiments. Um, at a federal level, level, there are grants that you can get. Um, but that's, I think the, the, the utilities that are doing really interesting experimental stuff are, are relying on that. So that is one, you know, increasing funding opportunities for that would make a big difference, I think. Is there money in the already passed infrastructure bill for this kind of stuff, yes. Good. Okay. I don't so, know. The, yes. I don't know. I don't know the details, but I know that there is some existing funding uh, for that. It exists out there, and there are also. Um, I, I'll, I'm going to. I will be including a specific list of recommendations for utilities in the final report. But there is a list of. There is a website that I don't remember off the top of my head, but I have written down, where utilities can go to access grants across the um, federal spectrum. Okay. Button. So, so paint the picture of batteries and all this, because that's got to be a huge new aspect of cost mm-hmm. uh, and functionality that we just don't have in place yet. Well, so there's this very interesting um, tension, I think, um, between in the battery space between 
there's this huge opportunity for um, people to have battery systems in their home that act as storage. There's this great excitement around electric vehicles and using electric vehicles essentially as a battery storage system um, that can be drawn on uh, during the day to help balance the grid um, or to help balance the home energy use. Um, That's all very exciting. There is a specific, specifically a key, again, uh, supply chain challenge with lithium supply, as far as like what the amount of lithium it will take to make that happen. Mm -hmm. That's all happening at the local grid level. But I think the thing that's most challenging about making a full transition to renewables is that it's going to require a lot more grid level battery storage that we maybe don't yet have. Right. So there's still a lot of room for innovation in longer term battery storage. Most of the store, most of the like lithium ion batteries have to discharge within three to four hours. Um, even the iron flow batteries, which are um, often being combined with lithium batteries in, in microgrids, they can they have to discharge after 12 hours. Right. And so there's it's really, really tough because it's electricity and energy and it has to be used almost on demand um, to like, I think there's a lot of opportunity to innovate in the space of longer term battery storage, um, any kind of combination of, of like grid level battery storage, like bigger scale battery storage. There's a really interesting company um, uh, that we've talked to uh, called Energy Vault that is um, using, they are creating bricks out of waste uh, and then using that in a giant gravity power, like they use gravity to move energy around and activate those bricks mm-hmm. um, to store energy for grid. So that's like, I think one of the most interesting um, innovations that I've seen recently in that space. Um, it sounds like the water thing, but made into bricks. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's very yeah. cool. That is interesting. And we have, I know we have, well, so Elon Musk is a member of SNS mm-hmm. and he built at the time, I think the largest lithium based battery in Australia. Remember that bet that he made with the Australian government and he got it done on time. And, and so he got paid for it. Um, it was an interesting bet, but a very large, very large battery. And then we have uh, another um, uh, friend, Simon Hackett, who also has an energy flow uh, flow energy, flow battery uh, yeah. for a grid level storage, which he's taking care of. So lots, a lot going on with flow batteries and with uh, other forms of very large scale battery installations. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that we've done before, or we fo- focused on before at, at FIRE is hydrogen. So we've mm-hmm. talked about hydrogen as an energy storage possibility and potential. And it sounds like, you know, there's still maybe a ways off on that, but uh, making interesting progress and and kind of starting to think more about that as a long-term solution for storing and moving energy in time. Yes. I I saw, I think this week, that Germany just announced, partly under pressure, I think from their, from the Ukrainian war, call it a war, um, that um, they're going to be making a lot of hydrogen out of, of, wind power. And mm-hmm. the, idea, the idea there is just almost the opposite where you think about the battery helping the renewable project. But in this case, renewable energy is actually making hydrogen, uh, which becomes a currency of energy as well as a source of energy and shipping it all over Germany uh, to power other things like homes. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. The interesting thing about, you know, that I've found in the, in the hydrogen conversation that kind of mirrors the this grid conversation in a way is that uh, when you think about that making that transition, the current gas and oil pipeline system 
which already exists globally is the perfect infrastructure for transmission of hydrogen. Yes. So you could essentially just like move it over. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there would be, it would require a lot of work to make that happen, but um, yeah. it's, there are a lot of places I think where those kinds of synchronicities and existing infrastructure can be put to a second use. And all of this requires a willingness, an excitement about people who want it. And, you know, the general public, I think, will demand it. And then a willingness by the utilities and regulators to step forward. Yeah. And I think even more, but more powerful than either of those two things, actually, um, is how large corporations have been pushing this forward. Mm -hmm. So because of the pressure that, that um, they've been under from the public and their employees, companies like Google have just like Google in the last year, I think committed to hundred um, percent renewable energy in real time, right? So right. what that means, I'm probably say, saying that there's a very specific way to say that, but what that essentially what it means is that at no point in any day will any part of their electricity be offset with anything other than renewables, right? right? So that's a big commitment. And those kinds of uh, companies are, are pushing utilities to have to make those changes mm -hmm. because they are their biggest customers. That's right. So it's, it's actually like one of the, you know, one of the more, the more advanced projects are happening often in the corporate space. And, and cause for a lot of optimism in, in, a, in a generally pessimistic situation where you, you have the largest consumers of energy pushing the hardest. Well, um, it's also, you know, it's, it's kind of fun because it, I mean, not, maybe not fun is the wrong word, but um, it's interesting because we are living in a time when no internet company can afford to be offline at any point. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of necessitates the move to uh, microgrids for, a lot of like high power, you know, um, like cloud storage or um, uh, server farms, you know, all of these things that like cannot afford to be offline, they have to have a backup. That's and right. because they can't count on the US grid to be renewable, they have been making that transition much quicker, more quickly and, and earlier than utilities, than, you know, homes and residential communities. Um, and so it's interesting to look to those projects to see okay, what can we take from this that can be replicable throughout the rest of society? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think we've covered it, but I, I just want to say again, for those people who are interested in this subject, um, I think I've read the executive summary. I think you've done a magnificent job and that'll be available in SNS this coming week. Um, and so, and then of course, there's the full report, not just the executive summary, which will be coming out sometime soon as well. And we'll make available to people and tell them how to get it when it's done. So it's not just a summary, it's this whole, it's like a hundred and something page report on all the things that you learned through conversations monthly for I think a year or more, mm -hmm. pretty exciting and um, well-written too. Well, yeah, the ex I think the most exciting part about it for me is that it is a big challenge. It is a big challenge. It will take a lot of work and a lot of money and investment. But the cool thing about it is that there are all of these technologies out there that exist or are being developed mm -hmm. that will that have the potential to accelerate the tran that transition in ways that I think a lot of people don't expect or don't foresee. Mm -hmm. So that to me was, I think the most exciting part of, of, you know, we talked to, to all kinds of people. We talked to Amy Levins, we talked to Saul Griffiths, we talked to, you know, all of these like leaders from across the renewable space who have been working on this and studying this their whole life to try to come up with the best possible list of solutions. Um, and the cool thing about it is that the solutions exist. We just need to put them into place. Exactly.
Well, thank you, Barry. Yeah, thank you.